leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Into Cybersecurity. And today we have a special edition with a cybersecurity company founder. Her background comes from leading a red team company and now switching to blue. I will leave that up to Des, who is our guest today, to share her background and why she wanted to come on this podcast to help influence the next generation of leaders in cybersecurity. Thanks, Chris, for having me. And uh, thanks to hi to everybody out there. You're absolutely right. Before we were Blue Team, which, you know, the company, as you can see the logo behind me, or if you're listening, that it's called Seamonster. We were definitely Red Team. A lot of people don't know what Blue Team, Red Team is. So maybe we should get into that. Blue Team is def defense when it comes to cybersecurity and Red is proactive and testing and things like that. And uh, we had a background of Red Team a history of red team hacking for years and switched to blue. I must say, because we're talking about breaking into cybersecurity, I am not technical. I don't have any of the qualifications that you do or do all the things that you do. However, I am a founder and a co-founder, I should say, in this area. I have, the company is ours and I lead and I am the CEO. I suppose the first thing we can say is that you really do not need to be technical in order to be in this space. There are room there is room. I don't think I could have done it on my own though. I definitely needed my co-founders. Yeah. So what initially prompted you to found a company focused in cybersecurity with your co-founder? Okay. So when we were blue to red team, we had a clients and regular clients. One of them was Blue Scope Steel, which is the fourth largest steel manufacturer in the world with locations all over the place. So their data security issues were quite unique. They were in mines that were everywhere. And uh, we would keep, we would do the pen testing and they asked us at some point, is there software that could, is there software that we could uh, use to help protect us? And we didn't know at that time. And then through that to trial and error and learning, we actually learned about seams and we <clears throat> that there was such a product. And uh, we introduced them to Splunk. This is a really good origin story. Fantastic. To which they turned around and said, you know what, Splunk is white. And this is a very large organization saying Splunk was overpriced. So they asked if there's anything else we could do. So we started with open source tools and started to build a team and we thought it was a side project and it's become now the main event. Wow. And as a thinking from a founder's perspective, for those that are not technical and you're looking to get into this space as a leader, what mm -hmm. do you need to do 
to ensure that you're having the right conversations with the business when it might be more technical than you are or having individuals asking those types of questions? How do you keep up with the industry? So for us, we, we found a need within the industry and then decided to fulfill it. And I suppose that's the first place to start if you're looking to become a founder. So becoming a founder is different to leading in this space, by the way. That's a different skill set. Becoming a founder is just relying on your entrepreneur skills to see, look for a, a possibility in the industry and then fulfill it. Leading is a different skill set. Leading is that you have a team behind you, you've built a team, and it's the style that you bring in order to make that team better, to literally, literally carry that team or lead the team, the name suggests itself. So those two are different skill sets. And to break into them, leadership skills are synonymous in every industry. Cybersecurity does tend to have a lot more neurodiversity. So if you're not good with working with neurodiversity, you're probably not the industry to be leading in. And for founding, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for sure. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up neurodiversity. I think it's often not covered enough. And as you mentioned that, what are some of the skills that are really needed to lead neurodiverse workforces? So I think that we've all, we're very used to cookie cutter solutions. Like we all go to school. It's the same thing. Like we reward the person who puts their hand up and answers questions and stuff like that. And we ignore the quiet one sitting in the corner. And we try and train people to all have the same personality. What I'm saying is it's almost like a societal standard. And when it comes to working with people and working with neurodiversity, it's more than just a personality trait, right? So the neurodiverse person communicates in a different way, their brain works in a different way, and they require a different way in which to be handled. So what I've seen is that people, like, it comes down to the same, it's the same thing. It's not, oh, you have to treat them any different. It's the same thing. You make your staff comfortable and it's whatever makes them comfortable. For example, it's a small one. But my staff don't like to come, especially they don't like to come on camera. So in meetings. So I don't make it a point that you have to put your camera on because that's nothing to do with their job skill set. That's got nothing to do with whether they can do the job or not. That's just, it's a requirement outside of that. And so therefore, I, and I know it makes a lot of people uncomfortable to be on camera, to make the eye contact and things like that. So it's not a requirement for us. The way you dress, the way you are. And the other thing is, if you want to work from home, because I know a lot of neurodiverse people love that, I fully support that. We've been remote before the pandemic and continue to be there. Nice. And camera off, communications. What are some of your recommendations for a leader to be able to communicate effectively with a broad population, especially if you're remote? Okay. Tools are very handy. Collective tools, no matter what you use. I do struggle at times to, to get this right. We also deal with people where English is not their first language as well. So in that case, I actually, what I do, because I'm the one who wants to communicate, I actually use tools like Capture or any other video recording tool and will record myself saying whatever I need to say and screen share showing whatever I need to show. Therefore, I'm covering audible, visual, and uh, any other communication styles. So what's important is that they understand my message, right? So I don't need them to be on camera to, to listen, for example. So I will use that tool a lot. And it re works really well for people who, where one, it's recorded so people can go back and listen. And two, the fact that you're watching my gestures and stuff and what's important to me, especially screen sharing when I'm talking about certain things, especially creative stuff that I need done. It's, it's a really valuable tool in that case. 
Yes. I love the use of the audio visual as yeah. well as it sounds like you're using caption as well. When it comes to influence, how do you recommend that leaders develop their influence when they're not in person, they might be remote to work on those types of skills? Mm. So with I'm listen, we've had the pandemic, so everything's a bit topsy-turvy. But prior to that, we were meeting at least once a year and dragging everyone into the room. And although as reticent as people are, everyone does enjoy it because you do get to break some barriers down in your team. You actually sit down and have a meal together and things like that. They are team building exercises, which are important. And they do bring the coercive, it's coerciveness to the team. That's important. I also encourage some banter as well and some important to share the good things and the bad as well. So yeah, the, re- the other way, what I really do is actually get to know the person I'm dealing with because I think, and I spoke about this earlier, I try not to treat everyone as the same. So not everyone is the kid who puts their hands up and knows all the answer using the school, a classroom metaphor, right? So if you're the quiet kid in the corner, I will find a quiet moment to come sit next to you and then see how you're doing and if you're okay and do you understand everything. Because a leader, much like a good teacher, must know who they're leading and their style in order to reach them. And as, as you think about developing leaders within your organization, how do you create that talent pipeline for them to grow and lead in your organization? So that's the thing. I can't lead everybody. Obviously, I have to mitigate, like hand over that task to other people. So I pay very close attention to the corporate culture that I'm building, really close attention. So I will hand mold the people that I want to lead for me and work closely with them. And they're the people that I'm talking about. So once they know my style and I trust them, then I expect them to then carry on exactly the message and the style in which I've done. And that, to be honest, is the hardest part there because we have such a disconnection between executives and workers and nobody likes CEOs. You just need to go on Twitter to see that. But everyone wants to be found, everyone wants to be their own boss. And so there's a disconnection there. And, and I agree, there is a disconnection, but what's interesting is that both sides can often contribute to that, to that, to that workplace toxicity. So it's important to catch it I, when I see it, to catch it and uh, remove it. That's part of it. So it's all about training the people who I want to manage other people. So you mentioned training the people who, who grow, who grow and lead other people. What are some of the skills and competencies that you look in those people? I know you mentioned your style, but for mm. those listening, you're right. looking for that, those tips and tricks. So right. what would you recommend for them okay. to work on to become a leader? A good questions. I think that the base of it would be is to recognize that people are emotional creatures and that decisions made from emotion is not good leadership, right? That you must be able to put aside, you can get upset. You can be very happy. It doesn't matter. The emotion is feel your emotion. We're not robots. But to make decisions while you're in that heightened state is the number one mistake right there. So not to do that. And also not to take things personally, because this, this isn't like to use the Godfather. It's not personal. It's personal. It's business, right? So it's that, which means I'm asking people to, and I'm looking for people to remove ego as well, to be more skill orientated or goal orientated and to remove ego. So that it, in order to do, that's the really nuanced part. You need to be able to show vulnerability. You need to be able to not have a bit of humility and be humble to say, hey, listen, I made a mistake. I need to know how to do better. And often there's a little bit of untraining as well. If you've been, like I, if you're an executive, you've been in a different organization where they have a different corporate style, 
you're bringing that, yeah. you're bringing all of that to my new, to in this, and you're trying it on. Now you might not like it. You might've left because of corporate culture was so toxic, but unbeknownst to you, you'll often bring those attitudes over as well. So it's about recognizing your own behavior as well and being willing to change. And those are the people that I want on my team, those who can actually adapt to do that. Because what happens is, and you, and people might say, Hey, listen, this is a, it all sounds a bit soft and lovey-dovey, but once you actually get people comfortable and happy in their workplace, they are far more productive. It's as simple as that because people do not work for money. It doesn't matter how big the paycheck is. If you're treating them like the proverbial, I won't. Yeah. They will leave. They will look to leave anywhere. They'll say, I, just because I don't need this, I will find another job and then I'll transition over. Nothing is worth this. It tells you that we spend a lot of hours at work. We spend a lot more than we do often with our family, right? So our relationships with our work should not be toxic. And it's funny because we speak a lot about toxic relationships and we know we have toxic relationships with our boss and all that sort of stuff, but there's not enough discussion about what to do about that. So all of your questions about how to lead, my first thing would be is that if you want to be a good leader, focus in on that, trying to remove a lot of that. And it's not because... One, like I said, a happier workplace is a far more productive workplace. You're inspiring people to bring their best, not because you're paying them to. Earlier, you mentioned that there's a lot of neurodiverse individuals within this. How do you help those that often have been very technically focused, yeah. but now are interested in leading people to switch from that individual contributor mode yeah. to that leadership mode? I know exactly. Yeah. So it's, to be honest, sometimes you could, my suggestion would be this, and that is to break it down as a flow chart, right? So you, to lead effectively, you must say, I need something done and then I need a result from that. And I, and then, so that's the flow chart, right? So I need my staff to do this and then I need to know that it's done. Basics, right? And then we break it down. If they don't do this, then it becomes like a if that, then this situation, if they don't do this, what is my course of action? And so you can start building it out. Am I helping you visualize like a pathway? You can start building it out. If they don't do it, this is what I do. If they don't do it again, I escalate to this. And then this is, and you fill that out. Now, of course you fill that out in a way that will work for you, right? So threatening and cajoling and all that sort of stuff may work once, twice, and then that doesn't make you a good leader, right? So the same thing, if they do that, what do you do? Like you must, do you praise? Do you say, well done? Do you say, how do you reward them? What's their best reward? What is their, what matters to them? So I'm trying to break it down in a way, because I do know how the neurodiverse mind works. I'm trying to break it down in a way in which you can see it, that there are pathways that you can actually learn to say, this is what to do in this situation. And then how do you report back to your superior? What are you saying? How are you communicating? How often are you communicating? What is it that they want to see from you? And good leadership is thinking always outside of the box, but you can actually quantify that too. Do I want to make everyone just a little bit more happier around here? So how do I go about doing that? Or do I want, I need productivity up. See, here's the thing. Old style of leadership is I need productivity up. The manager gets out of his office, walks into the, the work fo the floor and says, work harder, and then returns back, sits down, job done, right? So I will argue that's not leadership. <laughs> Yes, but neurodiverse people can absolutely lead. It just means that they would recognize that what is required, like what does leadership look like once you understand what leadership looks like. And remember the whole adage of lead, a really good leader will have people who want to follow them, not because they have to. That's when you know you're a very good leader, right? Because they want to follow you. 
and you inspire loyalty as well. I love how you've been able to group the different aspects of delegation, collaboration, communication, all, all into that flow chart. And, and kind of an adage to the company that you're leading right now, a sim company, being able to do if-thens and understanding how data is flowing through it. Right. So let's pivot over to the company side, if you don't mind. As you shifted from an adversarial approach to now a defensive approach with your companies, how, how yes. do you help individuals make that mindset change in order to better defend their companies and to grow as technical individuals? Are you talking about my staff or my customers? Your customers, because in order to be able to utilize a good SIM or any other defensive product, you have mm. to start potentially from a threat model approach and kind of take that adversarial approach and then go back and go, okay, so... Well, this might happen, so let's look for this. Let's ensure that we log this or we do this. How do you go about and educate your customers on the need for your product? Oh, I see. For starters, regulation is doing a great job, and so is there. So are actual black hat hackers doing a great job at marketing on the reason why we need security. They're like I couldn't market the way they do for me, and also regulation as well. So now we're getting more regulated because we have data. It used to be just banks. You need if you've got money. You need to be secure. That was the way it goes. Now, hospitals are being targeted. Universities are being, like anything where there is a lot of information are being targeted and used in an inappropriate way because data is valuable. It's as simple as that. Like your health records are valuable as well. So there is an obligation. There is a moral obligation for the companies in those areas or any industry really where they're holding data, personal data about somebody that they need to protect them. That sells itself right? That's, that sells itself. So it's a matter of what tool you use. And here's where we get into how people make these decisions. And I'll be frank with you. People just usually Google or use what everyone else is using. Usually the Gartner quadrant, you know, what everyone else is using. And you know, what's really interesting, Chris, all of those breaches that you hear in the news, they all have security software and yet none of them are working. And that question is not being asked. Like what were you using that failed you? And now you have a breach an embarrassing breach that you have to do a PR recovery on. What were you using? How did you make that decision? Who made that decision? Will you reconsider that software? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? If we were to use an analogy, the one I like using about security in a house, for example, or a building, right? You employ security guards to monitor your building and you get robbed. Do you sit there and say, it was bound to happen? Or do you sit there and say, who did I, who was protecting us? Like, where is their responsibility in all of this? Were they, did we leave a door open? Did they leave it? You know, that, so that's what you're asking yourself. You would reconsider and maybe up your security. That's something that would happen naturally. Like your brain would go there. I don't know if, because we all have a saying in this industry, if you're in this industry for long enough, you know that no one gets fired for using a Gartner Quadrant product. Okay. So it's a safe bet. Is it a secure bet? No. If it was, we wouldn't have the breaches we did. Yeah, I'd go there. And I'd, I'd also sit, I'd also look at understanding, have you properly used the software? Have you properly configured Correct. the software? I agree. Have you, have, have you tested the software to ensure that it does what it says it does? I agree. It, but I, I think, I, I think that, exactly. But there's also software limitations as well. So if you're yeah. got a price point, so for example, we're talking about Seam, right? Because I, this is in my area that I know a lot of. 
if you're talking about price per node, right, so endpoints, you're being priced, you all of a sudden are now making fiscal decisions on what you're going to protect. Now, you tell me, Chris, is that securing your network or are you picking and choosing for the best of your knowledge? So I'll secure that door, that window, that door, but the back door, I'm just going to hope no one gets in there because I can't afford to put a lock on there to use the analogy again. So that's not, so here's what we say, that's not security. And the reason why we say that is because we have been red team for so long, we know exactly how to find that damn back door, right? So that's the difference is that it's not about just securing, knowing how to configure, although I agree with you, that's a really big and important point that you must know how to use the software that's put in front of you. But also is the software, is the pricing point of the software allowing you to protect your entire network? Yes or no? And if you don't put a SIG ring around your entire network, are you secure? Yes or no? Ooh, that's an interesting point. We're now in a world where everyone's remote. So mm. a ring around the network is hard because everyone's everywhere. Right. Absolutely. Um, now we get into risk-based decisions Correct. on understanding which are, which are the most valuable nodes to protect. Correct. Because they hold the most sensitive data. And then the ones that might not have anything on there. They might not be critical infrastructure. Those might go unmonitored, but you ensure that your critical assets get that protection. But that's not security. That's just wishing hopes and prayers. That's what that is. And I'll tell you why, because the room at the Great Wall of China was never infiltrated by an army. It was infiltrated by bribing the guard at the door. So it's the weakest link that will actually let you in. Correct. Actually, I'm not even sure if that analogy is true, but I've heard it so much. It must be. But the point is that, again, I reiterate, reason why we double down on this, if you're not protecting everything, you're not secure, is because of our red team days. We would get in by the most unlikeliest manner, right? So if we were doing that, and then we, then we now we've switched to blue team, right? So we say, here's a product. In all good confidence, we cannot offer a solution to people and say, here you go. It's the best we can, you know what I mean? Just like you said, the most important data centers, just protect those and you're good to go. That's not secure. So if you've got a worker working from home accessing that data or whatever, then you do have a vulnerable point right there. So that's, okay, so we're getting to product features and I know yeah, we yeah. don't need to go there, but that's, we would, I would say that's not secure. That's not security at all. And Similar to that, but saying now taking that approach and going zero trust, where when you design your architecture, you design mm. it least privilege, least but, access, all these things. Yes. Then does the same analogy still apply? So yeah, we would have, we layer out, if you're talking about our product, we layer out our, our privileges for sure, but we also have agents as well. So, you know, when you're talking about remote situations and stuff like that, which becomes a nightmare for people because you're literally looking at different tenants, like different areas. And that's where we shine, right? Big data in all over the places where we shine. Because remember, we modeled this after BlueScope. Remember that? They were like everywhere. So small data everywhere, but collectively big data. So, you know, pretty by even putting an agent on a local small area, could be a home office, could be anything. So that becomes your collection point. If there's a disconnection, so that's redundancy there, if there's a disconnection with either the internet or power, all your data logs are still there. So when the connection is resumed, those are uploaded to your scene. Now that is, that's what we call the double redundancy and all sorts of security measures that we think of because of exactly those situations, right? So exactly those. That's, I guess, what makes us 
uniquely different. We're constantly looking because we're constantly looking at holes in our own software, right? Yeah. So another approach I've worked with companies and there's using products like this for compliance. And then there, there's using products like this for value add. Uh, it, the origin story of many seams were they weren't security products to begin with. Correct. They were big data analysis products. So how do you, what sort of use cases have you shared with customers where okay. oh, it becomes a value add versus a cost center? No, I agree because there's some people who would buy a seam as a da- searchable uh, database and that's not what a seam is. A SIEM must have SOAR or XDR capabilities these days, right? So it actually has to do something rather than just collect data. Because by the definition, it's a incident event management software. Now you have to manage the damn events. You can't just, there's a database, let me just serve, search it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like just by its very definition, there's a lot of people calling themselves a SIEM provider that are not. So the value add comes from, and I do have an example of one of my customers who has Seamonster. They've been using it for quite a while and they had a phishing attack. They, what do they call it when they want money from you? It's called ransomware, right? Yes. So they had a ransomware attack and the Seam with the XDR capabilities shut that down immediately and was notifying and notified the operators immediately. So that it knew what was happening. It was smart enough to know it was happening and it shut it down. And so here was an issue that would have been newsworthy, absolutely. That turned into an ordinary day. It was like the security product did what it was supposed to do. So that is a value add right there. So to use an example of collecting data. Now you said a lot of people use seams for compliance because, you know, you're being forced to, right? That's not because you take security seriously. So I would argue that if you hold people's data, you have an obligation to take security seriously. And only by doing it because you've been made to, it's the open market, right? There will be people out there who will offer security and people are becoming a lot more wise with that. People are becoming a lot more like intuitive, who's holding my data? Where is that? Where's that? So just being compliant is a rather relaxed position to take. Yes. And how do you help your customers move from ready for compliance to security for that moral obligation, minimum spend versus really achieving something actionable? So that's the core of exactly, like when you talk about the heart and core and the soul of the company, exactly that. We did not want security to be gatekept by price. We only thought if we were going to do something, it's almost like democratizing security, right? It should be for everybody. So the price point is the one we attacked because we knew that was the reason, the gatekeeping reason why people would not protect everything. So when you are with us, you're not just protecting for compliance. You literally, you have the ability to protect your whole entire network. Now, by doing that, you are protecting your whole entire network. We're not letting you, or not asking you to choose. Yeah. So that is your biggest benefit right there. You're not choosing to say, oh, just, just these bits, just, which is, let's face it. The reason why we do that is because price, like it costs a lot, right? Yeah. Wow. We've gone from leadership yeah. to leading in security. Des, thank you so much for coming on. But before we go, any Mm. final advice you want to give to future cybersecurity leaders? Oh, find yourself a very good mentor. And yeah, that's it. Find yourself a really good mentor. And okay, so it comes down to the person in the arena. Only take advice from those actually in the arena, not the people in the peanut stands telling you they can and can't do it better. Wow. Des, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time for coming on another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity Leadership. Thank you for having me.
in the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity. Your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.